Last week, we wrapped up our second week in Genesis 19. We were taking a a right turn from our main narrative in Genesis to look at the life of Lot. And what a strange and tragic tale it was. If you missed that study, there's some great lessons hidden in there, and you can check that out online if you want to listen or watch that and catch up. This week, we're switching back to our main narrative, following the life and faith journey of Abraham. And when we last checked in on Abraham, he had been visited by Jesus and two angels. And Jesus had reminded Abraham that his wife, Sarah, was going to have a son that would be named Isaac in less than a year. And so we pick things up with Abraham sometime after that visitation from Jesus, but before Sarah gives birth to this promised son. Genesis 20, verse one, we read, and Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now we don't know why Abraham moved. It could be after seeing the smoke of destruction rising from Sodom and Gomorrah, he decided it would be good just to get a little bit extra distance from those places. Or it could be that he simply gets restless and like so many of us, he leaves the place where God is blessing him for no apparent reason at all. And I won't ask you to raise your hand if you've ever done that. There was no reason. And you look back and you go, why, why did I move from where God was blessing me? Why did I leave? Why did I stop doing those things? Whatever the reason, he heads south into the land of the Philistines, a pagan people. And we read in verse 2, Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Abraham told everyone he encountered in Gerar that his wife was his sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. You might be thinking, Jeff, didn't we read this story already like like weeks ago? Same deal, different occasion. Just as he did in Egypt around 25 years ago and again after that, Abraham lies about the nature of his relationship with his wife Sarah. In the world at this time, it would actually happen that men would kill other men to steal their wives. However, they they would not kill a woman's father or brother. They would instead negotiate a dowry with them. So, So let's just take a second though to appreciate how legendary Sarah's beauty must have been because she is so good looking at around the age of 90 that Abraham asks her to lie because he says, babe, listen, someone's going to kill me to get to you. I mean, you're hot stuff. Everybody knows this. So we got to figure something out. And his plan was, babe, babe, if you love me, just say you're my sister. That way, if things get sketchy, you'll be taken into some guy's harem, but at least I'll survive. And I'll probably get a very generous dowry for you. So everything will kind of work out. So Abraham and his posse set out on their latest move and sure enough, that exact thing happens. The king of the region sees Sarah, finds out she's apparently single, just traveling with her brother, and he says, I gotta have her. And so he takes her and adds her to his harem, assumedly pays a dowry to Abraham, her brother. And so just to clear up any confusion, as, as you're reading the Old Testament, you're going to see the name Abimelech come up again. That is actually a title. It's not a name. Just like Pharaoh is not a name, it's a title. Abimelech is just the title given to the Philistine ruler in each region. He is an Abimelech. Verse 3, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, 
Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. So that night, the ruler of the region, the Abimelech, has a dream in which God speaks directly to him. And before we get into that, you need to know that the norm at this time was when you added a a woman to your harem, you were generally going to sleep with them that night. And so the fact that Abimelech doesn't do that, but has rather gone to bed and fallen asleep, is very, very unusual. It means something's going on. And we're going to find out that the likely reason is because when God tells him in his dream, you are a dead man. He's, he's not speaking future. He's saying right now, you are a dead man. And Bible scholars tell us that that is really referring to the life in his body being dead. In other words, his reproductive ability being dead. Are you connecting the dots here? Okay, okay. So he sort of probably has the plan to sleep with Sarah, but that's not on the agenda tonight. That's not happening. But more importantly, the text is also gonna point in that direction as we keep reading. And the idea is that what God has done is God has made all of the men impotent and all of the women barren in Abimelech's household, but likely in the whole region of Gerar. Meaning that, you know, for Abimelech, there were some options that were removed that evening. Verse four, but Abimelech had not come near to her and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he, speaking of Abraham, not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I've done this. Abimelech says, Lord, you know, I didn't know it was Abraham's wife. I don't deserve this punishment. Verse six, and God said to him in a dream, yes, now underline this, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, for that reason, I did not let you touch her. So God says, I was gracious to you, Abimelech, by preventing you from touching Sarah and sinning against her. Even though Abimelech is not a believer, there's, there's some sort of dynamic at play here. Abimelech is a guy who, from everything we're told, is trying to live his life with integrity as best as he knows how. And so the Lord protected him from making a disastrous mistake. And the same is true for you and I. Make a note of this. When we live with integrity, the Lord protects us from getting caught up in sinful situations. When we live with integrity, the Lord protects us from getting caught up in sinful situations. You see, living with integrity means doing something that's not very popular in our culture. Integrity means having boundaries. Integrity means having lines that you will not cross. Situations you will not allow yourself to end up in. And what we see here in the text is that when we determine to live with integrity and boundaries, the Lord will bless us by protecting us from ending up in situations where we can't help but sin. You see, sometimes we get ourselves into situations and we say, oh man, you know, that just felt like the Lord didn't make a way for me to not sin in that situation. And the reality is he did. The way for you to not sin was to not get in that situation by having boundaries, by having lines that you wouldn't cross. 
And so what the word is telling us is it's saying when we, when we have those boundaries, when we seek to live with integrity, God's going to come alongside us and help protect us on top of that as well as we seek to live with integrity. Now the Lord continues speaking to Abimelech and he says, now therefore restore the man's wife for, and then underline, he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. The men are afraid because they're all going, uh, yeah, we had a similar experience last night. This is really happening. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. No kidding. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you have in view that you have done this thing? What were you thinking, Abraham? Because of you, God made me impotent. That's not right. And now we find out the problem that led to this situation. Get your pen ready here. This is what led to the situation. And Abraham said, underline this, because I thought. Because I thought. Well, there's your problem. And doesn't that sum it all up? Isn't that exactly how we get ourselves into trouble in life? Not, well, the word said to lie to you, Abimelech. Not, I prayed and the Lord led me to give my wife to your harem. But I got in a difficult situation and I thought, you know, it's far better to be a prayer than it is to be a thinker. Because however smart you may be, however smart you may be, however astronomical your IQ may be, compared to the Lord, you're an idiot. So am I. It is far, far better to seek the Lord. Blessed is the man or woman who recognizes this truth and instead learns to say, I'm going to defer to your judgment on this one, Lord. I'm going to go with what your word says rather than what I think. Verse 11, and Abraham said, because I thought Surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they'll kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she truly is my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So Abe says, you know, I was scared. I mean, you guys are non-believers. And it was only a half-life. You know, technically, technically, she is my sister. But in God's economy, a half-lie is a whole lie. It's bearing false witness. It's sharing the right information with the wrong implication. It's twisting the context so that what you're saying is technically true, but the meaning that's coming across is not. Abraham was sharing the right information. She's my sister, well that's true, but with the wrong implication. He was implying that she was not his wife. They were not married. This is so heinous to God because it's exactly what the religious leaders would do to Jesus. Remember when they were trying to accuse him and they said, this man said he would destroy the temple. You remember that? And Jesus had said that. He said he would destroy the temple and raise it again in three days, but he was speaking about what? His body. 
his body, not the literal temple. Jesus had said that technically, legally, but that's not what Jesus meant, and they knew it. And we're seeing in Abraham and Sarah's life now the, the disaster that comes upon us when we try to be clever and try to be technical and play games with the truth and play games with righteousness as though we can somehow outwit God and do something that is wrong and say, well, technically it's right, God, as though God will not go, I'm the judge of all the universe. When I say it's wrong, it's wrong. Verse 13, and it came to pass when God caused me to wonder from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place, wherever we go, say of me, he's my brother. So now we find out, this is huge, now we find out that Abraham actually never changed this policy of lying. It's been their standard operating procedure every time they've traveled for over 25 years. They've been doing this the whole time. We just haven't heard about it in the text because they've been camped out in one place for a while. And by the way, ladies, even back then, men were trying to be smooth by saying, babe, if you love me, if you love me, then make this compromise for me, even though it's not really right. If you love me, just do this thing for me. It was shady back then and it's shady now. Don't fall for it, okay? Verse 14, then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, see, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. You see, when the God you're rolling with has the power to make all the men in the land impotent, this is the kind of treatment you get. Feel free to park your tent wherever you want, Abraham. We don't want any trouble. It's sort of like the old question, where does an 800-pound gorilla sit? Anywhere he wants. Anywhere he wants. Verse 16, then to Sarah, he, Abimelech, said, behold, I have given, underline, your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's like a million dollars. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. The word that's used there for rebuked actually means proved to be correct. In other words, vindicated, like it says earlier. Sarah was vindicated. And it makes sense because in Abimelech's rebuke of Sarah, he refers to Abraham as your brother instead of your husband. It's a not so subtle burn. He's throwing a little shade at Abraham. It's a backhanded way for him to say, I know this is not your fault, Sarah. I don't blame you. Your cowardly husband should never have put you in this situation. Verse 17, so Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female servants, and they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. As I was preparing this text and, and thinking about it, I was thinking about what we should zoom in on. What are the lessons that the Lord would really have us take from this. And there's, there's three that I'd like to share with you that I think will be helpful today. Firstly, in verse seven, the Lord said to Abimelech, speaking of Abraham, he is a prophet. It's the first time in scripture that the word prophet appears, making Abraham the first prophet identified in scripture. And just as a point of interest, we'll find that even though he's the first prophet in the Bible, Abraham will never be recorded as predicting the future, ever because that's actually not what a prophet typically does. You see, a prophet is someone who declares the word 
of God. Sometimes that includes predicting the future, but most of the time it doesn't. And what's astounding about this is that God identifies Abraham as his prophet when Abraham is in the middle of completely blowing it, making himself and God look bad in front of Abimelech. You've got Abraham, God's man, and then you've got Abimelech, a pagan king. And in the story, the one with the integrity is the pagan king. The cowardly liar is the guy who's God's man. I mean, if I were God, I wouldn't have wanted to identify myself with Abraham very much in this moment. I would have said to Abimelech, give this guy back his wife. I mean, I don't know who he is. He certainly doesn't work for me or represent me in any way, but just give him back his wife. But, but God doesn't do that. He says, Abraham's a prophet. He's my guy. Give him back his wife. Why does the Lord do that? Well, Romans eleven twenty nine on your outline tells us that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Underline that word irrevocable, irrevocable. It means not able to be changed, unable to be reversed or recovered. It means final. You see, when the Lord gives a gift, a natural ability, a talent, a spiritual gift, whatever it may be, the Lord will not take it away. Even if you decide to not use that gift for him, even when you blow it, even when you mess up a whole bunch of times and a few more times after that. The most obvious example we have is, if you haven't noticed, the massive number of people in the world making art, for example, of various forms for purposes other than the glory of God. Have you noticed that there's good music made by people who don't love Jesus? There is. Perhaps the greater mystery is why so much bad music is made by people who do love Jesus, but, but there's, there's a lot of good music made by people who don't love Jesus. And, and it's skillful, it's catchy, but it's not about God, it's not God honoring. How, how does that happen? Because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. Those gifts that God gave to them were not conditional. Their singing voice doesn't go away if they choose to sing about sex instead of about God. So here are some serious words of wisdom for all of us as believers. So knowing this reality, understanding that the Bible tells us that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, write this down. We should never assume that a person's gift is a reflection of their spiritual condition. Never assume that a person's gift is a reflection of their spiritual condition. Don't assume that because that person leads worship or records music in such a way that just brings you into the presence of God, that that must be because they're walking intimately with Jesus. Don't assume that because that, that preacher or teacher can just engage you and really reach you with the word of God or really hit you in the heart. Man, they must be walking with the Lord so tightly. You don't know that. I mean, I pray they are, but according to the word, their gift to lead worship, to teach, whatever it might be, will stay with them even if they're not walking with the Lord. The only way to know is to look at a person's life, who they are all the time, how they treat people all the time, what their relationships are like, how they treat their family, things like that. And I share this because as I've shared before, 
We wanna be like the Berean believers who the Apostle Paul commended because they didn't just believe what he taught them. They didn't just go, wow, you're Paul. Everything you say must be amazing and true. Paul said they were noble because they didn't simply believe what I said. They went and checked the scriptures out for themselves to see whether or not I was telling them the truth. And Paul said they were the most noble believers I encountered anywhere because of that. And I'm so thankful for all the people the Lord has gifted to minister to his church, but we need to understand there's not a connection between giftedness and holiness. There's not a connection. It's simply not true that the greater their gift, the greater their holiness must be. And we would be wise to remember the same thing about ourselves. Just because we're able to do things well in the area where we're gifted, doesn't mean that we're walking with the Lord and he's approving of the way that we're living our lives. It simply means that God has given us gifts and he's not going to take them away. I think we can all think about our lives and recognize that reality as being true. If you wanna know if you or anybody else is truly walking with the Lord, look at the fruit of their lives, not the fruit of their gift. Don't look at what their gift is accomplishing, look at how they're living their life. But let me also say this to encourage us. No matter how bad you or I may have blown it, the Lord has not taken back the gifts that he's placed in you. He's never done that. They're still in you and the Lord still desires to see you use them for his glory. And the Lord still has plans for you to use them for his glory. Ephesians 2.10 is still true for you and I. No matter how bad we may have blown it, we are still his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, if we've blown it, it may not be possible for us to be entrusted with the same scale of work or the same platform that we might have once had but make no mistake about it. When the word of God says God prepared good works for us to do, that plan included the times that we were gonna blow it. The Lord knew about them before we were even born. And so the Lord's plan includes good things for us to do with our gifts even after we've blown it. He's never through with us. He never takes his gifts back. And his invitation still stands for you and I to be involved in the work that he's doing on the earth in this season of history. So write this down. No matter how bad we've blown it, the Lord still has desires and plans to use us and our gifts for his glory. He still has desires and plans to use us and our gifts for his glory. So when the enemy whispers in your ear and says, God is done with you, remember this story. It was right as Abraham was blowing his testimony that the Lord said of him, he's a prophet, he's a prophet, he's my guy. Praise God for second chances and third chances and three million chances. The Lord is so merciful, he's so kind, he's so generous and he's, he's so patient, he's so patient with us. Secondly, we have to talk about how shocking it is that Abraham is still pulling this whole She's not my sister nonsense after all these years. 25 years, we should be shocked when we read this. This is after 25 years of God doing the miraculous in Abraham's life, taking him from being a regular middle class guy 
to someone who's likely the wealthiest man in the world with the most formidable private militia in the world, blessed wherever he went, supernaturally protected by God, with a wife who's supernaturally pregnant by the grace of God. And if you've been with us through our study of Genesis, then you've read some of the incredible stories of what God did and how we provided for Abraham, even meeting him face to face on multiple occasions, the most recent one being just a few months at the most before this happens. And yet here's Abraham going back to his old practice, his old habits, as soon as he encounters those old fears. Why? What is going on? While all of the things I shared, all of God's blessings did indeed take place, the text tells us that Abraham never actually changed his policy and plan of lying about Sarah every time they traveled. You see, he never actually sat down with Sarah and said, babe, we need to talk. After all that the Lord has done for us, it would be so wrong for us not to trust him when we travel. And so we're not going to lie about our marriage anymore. Lying and cheating are are not options anymore. Half-truths are not acceptable. We're going to move forward in faith. That conversation, which should have happened, never happened. See, Abraham never took the practical step to get rid of the option to sin again in the future in that area. And I believe that's the lesson here. Make a note of this. If we don't make practical changes to keep ourselves from our favored sins, we'll inevitably revert to them in the future. If we don't make practical changes to keep ourselves from our favored sins, we'll inevitably revert to them. We'll go back to them in the future. Let me explain some more. I grew up going to youth camps, those week-long summer retreats where you would simultaneously seek the Lord and a girlfriend at the same time when you were a teenager. And the Lord really does so many amazing things at those camps. I believe in them. I send my kids to them. I was dramatically changed at some of them. But one of the other realities about summer camp is what's known as the summer camp high. Because you go from spending a week surrounded by people who love Jesus, worshiping him twice a day with music, having disciplined daily devotions, all in an environment where as much sin is kept at bay as possible. And you go from that back to normal life, back into high school, back to being around people who who don't love the Lord, back to not having anybody who's forcing you to read your Bible, back back to church and or youth group once a week. And often what happens is that the teenager you goes from this on fire for Jesus missionary who's ready to kick down the gates of hell to being overwhelmed by the world and returning very quickly back to the way things were in just a few weeks and the sins that you were caught up in before, those same temptations. And that's the Christian summer camp high. And the reason that happens is because there's generally a failure to make the practical changes necessary to continue walking with the Lord intimately. Most of the time we didn't come back from summer camp and say, I got to have a plan to get in the word every day i got to have a, a plan to surround myself with people who love the Lord on a more regular basis. There's this assumption that the Jesus high that you're on is going to be enough to overcome any temptation that you might encounter because I, I just did so in love with Jesus right now. And I see, and I personally know, 
many adult believers who set themselves up for failure by doing the exact same thing. And the same thing that Abraham did. And here's how it happens for us. We get saved or we recommit our lives to the Lord or we say, this is the time I'm gonna get serious about living for Jesus. And for a season, we're on that spiritual high. Man, we're in the word. We are at church, we're at small group, we're, we're praying daily, we're listening to worship music in the car to feed our souls. We're spiritually jacked and we are not looking back and, and while we're on this high, it's all good, it's all good and we think, you know, I don't need to make any radical changes to my life because I don't even want that stuff anymore. I'm not gonna fall back into that sin because Jesus is better than anything. And there's, there's no way I'd be tempted back into that. I don't even need to deal with it because it's not even relevant anymore. But then the high wears off because that's life and because we're human. And the challenge is going to show up, a test, a trial, a difficulty, a valley, a storm, or our flesh is gonna show up. That part of us that isn't ruled by the Lord and that longs for the sinful, lustful things that we want to do selfishly. And now the question will become, did we make the practical changes we needed to when we were in a good place with the Lord so that we can now ride out the storm in faith? Or did we just leave all our old sin pathways in place? Did we make no changes at all? And they're right there waiting for us. When we got saved, when we got serious about the Lord, did we evaluate our relationships? Did we, did we take a long, hard look at our closest friendships? And did we make changes based on the fact that the word says, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Evil company corrupts good habits. The Bible doesn't say good character changes evil character. Bible says, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Did we take a look at our relationships and say, listen, I, I love these people, but they cannot be my closest circle of friends. They cannot be the most influential people in my life because they are not going where I am trying to go in life. They are not seeking after Jesus. They can be my friends, but I'm gonna to have to create some distance. Did we look at some relationships and say, you know, actually that relationship needs to totally end because we're not actually even friends. We're just party buddies. That's all we do. <laughs> we just get together and sin. And I'm not even looking to do 10% of that anymore. So that relationship needs to end. Did we do that or did we just say, you know, I'm so spiritually strong I can just keep hanging out with the same people and I'll just win them all to Jesus. Bible says, that's a nice idea. Bless your heart for wanting that and thinking that. But the Bible says, don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. If alcohol had been an issue in our lives when we got serious about the Lord, did we get rid of it from our lives completely or did we say, I'm just gonna dial it back a little bit? Did we come up with new standards and boundaries to protect ourselves from falling back into that? Or did we just say, it doesn't matter, Jesus is better. He's everything I need. If pornography had been an issue, did we get rid of those TV channels that were full of it? 
Did we get accountability software on our computer or our phone or did we just say, no, I don't need to do that, man. I find all my satisfaction in the Lord now. Whatever our pathways to sin used to be, did we make any practical changes or did we just kind of not deal with it, not talk about it, and then inevitably drift back into those sins, those pathways when things got tough? Please hear me on this. Don't make changes to your life. Don't establish boundaries in your life for the days when you're spiritually strong. You don't need them for the days when you're spiritually strong. Make changes in your life and establish boundaries for the days when you're weak. That's when you're gonna need them. And when you're weak, you won't even have the energy to build them. So write this down. Integrity and wisdom creates boundaries for the days when we're spiritually vulnerable. It creates boundaries for the days when we're spiritually vulnerable. It's always easiest to put a roof on a house on the days when it's not raining. When things are going well, when you're walking with the Lord, that is the time to put boundaries and protections into your life to ensure you walk in integrity on those days when you're weak. And what Satan does is try to convince us we'll never be vulnerable. Incredibly, it's Satan who comes along and says, well, you don't even need to worry. You're so high on Jesus, that stuff won't be a problem for you. And so Satan plays on our spiritual pride and he gets us to think, you know, I'm not a child. I don't, I don't need limits. I don't need boundaries. I'm a grown man. I'm a grown woman. What does the word say? The word says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride goes before destruction. You know, I can follow them on Instagram. I can send them a message every now and then. That's not going to lead to anything. I wouldn't let it. Maybe not today. But what about that day in the future when you're stressed or you're tired or you're lonely or just overwhelmed by life? Abraham didn't make the practical changes he needed to. And then he got in a situation where he was fearful and he effortlessly reverted back to the same sin he always had. Please, please notice this. Abraham didn't fall spectacularly into sin. He didn't backslide enormously or, or get taken down by a wave of fear in the moment. He effortlessly walked back down a well-worn path of sin in his life that he had never dealt with. He never destroyed that path. He never sealed it off. He didn't create a new path and then put up a sign by the old one that said dead end. He never dealt with it. And so he reverted effortlessly back to walking down that same path, that same pattern of behavior, that same sin when the test and the trial came. May we learn from Abraham's mistake and not repeat it in our own lives. Lastly, let me share this. You know, Abraham... He couldn't minister to Abimelech. He couldn't. He, he had blown his testimony. He was a liar and a coward in the eyes of Abimelech. And he had brought serious problems, to put it mildly, 
into Abimelech's life. You know, when your sins make another person impotent, that person is usually not that keen to hear what you have to say about the Lord. I, just, just a pro tip for evangelism to tell you about. And so Abraham couldn't minister to Abimelech. But what could he do? He could pray for Abimelech. And if you've blown your testimony to someone, don't give up on them. You may not be able to minister to them, but you can still pray for them. Just as Abraham did, just as he was told to by the Lord for Abimelech. And the truth is that we all have people that we can't minister to because we've blown it in some way. Our sin has made it impossible for us to ever share with them. They won't receive it, they won't even listen. No matter how kind you try to be in your approach, don't give up, pray for them, pray for them. Because I have good news, you are not the only option the Lord has available to minister to them. I don't know if you're aware of this. The Lord has other people that he can use to minister to that person that you care about. You pray for them. Write this down. While we can't minister to everyone, we can pray for anyone. While we can't minister to everyone, we can pray for anyone. In conclusion, let me say this, wrapping up. If you're in a, a healthy or semi-healthy place in your spiritual life, your relationship with Jesus today, I would urge you to spend some time asking the Lord, asking the Holy Spirit, is there any area of my life where I'm vulnerable right now, where I need to make some practical changes, where I need to seal off some old paths, where I need to raise an issue with my spouse? talk about something with my kids. Is there anything that we need to deal with, Lord, that we've just never dealt with? I'd encourage you to at least ask the Lord. Give him the space and time today to reveal to you if there is anything you need to deal with so that you can walk in integrity so that the Lord can protect you. And then maybe today you need to, to pray for someone you're mad at. Maybe it's someone you're bitter towards, someone you need to forgive, someone you can't minister to. You know, most of the time, those people that we can't minister to, they're the people who need to be at the top of our prayer list. They need prayer. Maybe spend some time praying for them, asking the Lord, God, would you just send someone that they will receive ministry from? I don't care who it is, Lord. Pray that the Lord blesses them. Pray that the Lord reveals himself to them in a greater way. We're gonna have a chance to do that. We're gonna have some worship right now. It's a chance for you to Praise the Lord, but to also seek him and to pray, there's gonna be communion available in the back. You can take it any time in this coming time of worship and then we'll pray together at the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us, Jesus, and thank you for the wisdom of your word. Thank you that in Abraham's life, Lord, we can learn from his great moments of faith, but also from his moments of failure. And Lord, we desire to be people who walk in integrity, who are protected from sin by you, who put up wise barriers and boundaries in our lives to protect ourselves and our marriages and our, our families and our, our friends and our testimony from destruction. Lord, give us grace to make any practical changes that we may need to 
for our good and for your glory, Lord. And we just ask by the power of your spirit that if there's an area of life you want to illuminate for us right now, please do so. Please let us know if there's something we need to deal with now, Jesus, and help us to be faithful to do it. And then, Lord, thank you that those we love are loved infinitely greater by you. And we do pray, Lord, that if they won't receive ministry from us, that you would send them someone that they will receive from. Open their eyes to to know you and be blessed by you, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.